Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians. We are continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. We are in chapter 6. Last week, we were looking at Ephesians 6, through, uh, 6, 10 through 13. You'll notice that we are looking at the same verses again, but I'm going to be focusing on something a little bit different this week. Last week, we were talking about <clears throat> our need to stand firm against the attacks of Satan and our need, since we have a supernatural enemy, we, our need for a supernatural strength to be our strength, that God would be our strength. Well, Paul has, in this last part of Ephesians, been describing how we are to live as Christians in the midst of a fallen world. And this fallen world, he tells us, is under the power of the sway of the evil one. But God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. So as we are still in the world and the devil is still in the world, this places us in a position of great conflict. We have an enemy, and we are told here of his schemes. That is the one phrase that I'm going to focus on this morning, the schemes of the devil. And so I'm going to be jumping off of Ephesians a little bit, looking at some other places in the Bible that instruct us as to what these schemes are. Let me read our passage. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. This is God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us by your word, instruct us, lead us closer to you through it. We ask that you would give us faith, give us ears to hear what you tell us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul has written many letters, you know. In no other place has Paul spent more time focusing on spiritual warfare than here in the book of Ephesians, in our passage this morning. You might wonder why in the letter Ephesians that he focuses on this. It may be perhaps because Ephesus was so, um, was so saturated with Magic, you remember many, many, a great value of books was burnt there. There was demons. There was, Ephesus was a place of, of, of great wickedness in this regard. Maybe that's why I do not know. Um, but here we have this great instruction about spiritual warfare. So for that reason, I'm going to spend a little more time on it, focusing on uh, the schemes of the devil. The Puritan minister Thomas Brooks once wrote, Christ, the scripture, your own hearts, and Satan's schemes 
are the four main things that should be first and most studied. Christ, the scripture, your own hearts, and Satan's schemes. Those first three things probably don't surprise you. This Satan's schemes might be the one that we most neglect. In our passage this morning, we have been called to put on the full armor of God. You see why? Why do we have this armor? It is so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That's what it says. That is the purpose of the armor, so that we might stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, Paul has mentioned the schemes of the devil in one other place in his letters. I think it's just one other place. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where he wrote that he desired that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We might reflect on it and go, I'm actually not sure what his schemes are. I haven't thought that much about it. But if we look at what Scripture has revealed, we will see what his schemes are, many of his schemes. But we also are told from this that we have an enemy who seeks to take advantage of us by deceit. And there are plans that are laid to cause you to stumble. We know that he is looking for opportunities to take, care, to take advantage of us. And we have knowledge of his schemes if indeed we listen to what God has taught us in Scripture. So brothers and sisters, what are the schemes of the devil? And how can we see through these lies so that we can stand firm? That is what we're considering this morning. And so because of that, I'm going to flip back to a couple other passages and read them as well, which are very enlightening as to the schemes of the devil. The first one is from Genesis chapter 3. Be reading verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The second passage is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on your hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I want you to keep these two passages in mind. There's another passage that's very instructive for us in Job. We see in the case of Job how God allows Satan to afflict Job, to not destroy him. And then you see the range of Satan's abilities in this the next few things that happen. Fire comes down from heaven, destroys some of his animals. Raiders come. A wind comes, destroys his house. He loses all his children at once. So Satan, we see from, from these that Satan has some control sometimes over storms, over fire from heaven, over stirring up enemies. We also see in the case uh, of a, there was a woman in the Gospels who was afflicted physically, and Jesus said that she had been bound by Satan all these years. So we see there some of the range of Satan's abilities might be more than you imagined. It doesn't mean that every storm is from, from Satan or every sickness is from Satan, but Satan has many ways to attack, to afflict, to trouble us, to try to drive us at, like Job, away from the Lord. In Job, we see a great instruction about Satan's range of abilities. Today, I'm focusing more on his schemes. So keep in mind, especially Genesis and Matthew that I've just read. Now, Satan's attacks fit with who he is. They flow from his character. He does what he does because he is who he is. He lies because he's a liar. He's always been a liar. He's always been a deceiver. He's a murderer from the beginning. You remember Jesus saying this. Now, we saw in our passages that he's called Satan. And this title means the adversary. So you see from that that he fights against us. He fights against God. His desire is to destroy God's works, to destroy his worship, destroy his image, which is you. He is also called Apollyon, which means the destroyer. And so he tries to destroy our relationship to God and really everything about us that reflects God's character. He wants to shatter it to pieces. And the image of God has been shattered in us. It remains, but it is a ruined form. It is being restored through Christ. He is also called the tempter in Matthew 4. He is called the deceiver and the accuser in Revelation 12. And so he attempts to lead us astray with lies he also acts to accuse us uh, to destroy our joy and our assurance. You might remember there's a passage in Zechariah where the Satan stood by to accuse Joshua, the high priest. 
He is, he is a tempter and an accuser. These are the two main things I'm going to focus on this morning. A tempter and an accuser in that order. First, you see he deceives us and tempts us to sin. What does he tell Eve? He says, you surely won't die. And secondly, as soon as we sin, he turns on us to accuse us and to trouble us. This is just a fruit. It's going to make you wise. And then as soon as we are tempted, he wants us to hide from God. He wants us to run away. So really, uh, he has one main task, and that is to drive you from God. Either um, as a tempter, he causes you to break God's law. As an accuser, he causes you to doubt the gospel. So one is to drive you away from God. The other is to keep you away from God. That is his main goal because God is our strength. And if God is our strength, who can fight against us? But without him, you can do nothing. I'm sure Satan knows this verse. And it's not just good things. You have no armor apart from God. You are absolutely defenseless. We are like sheep in the midst of wolves without God's strength. So his one task is to drive you from God and to keep you away, keep you from going back to God. So uh, those are his two main strategies then, to tempt us and then to accuse us. Now, Satan's first main work is to tempt us to sin. And to do this, he presents sin as something desirable, or at least a small thing which God will forgive, or he presents the consequences of sin as very small. And we see this in the case of Adam and Eve. First, he very subtly tries to destroy her confidence in God and in his word. He calls God's character into question. It's really difficult to pull this off when, when what can you possibly tempt Adam with? I mean, he's been given the entire world. Everything is perfect. And so if Satan can contempt this man in this condition, then he's really quite good at what he does. He says to Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we know God didn't actually say that. He said they could eat of any tree except one. So Satan subtly attacks God's generosity. He wants them to stop focusing on all the wonderful things that God has given them, and so proven his grace, proven his goodness, proven his generosity to them. Instead, focus on the one thing that God hasn't given them, to build discontentment in them. Now, we see this in ourselves too, though, don't we? You know, you and I have been given so much. We live in an age where things are quite easy for us. Kings in the past would have been very envious of you just doing normal things like driving along at high speeds with your air condition blowing in your face. You know, no one had this. We have, we are 
at incredible ease in this age. And yet we are so quick to question God for anything bad in our life or to accuse him of being unkind. Why has God not given me this or that? Why has he taken this from me? Every other person has it. Is God not good? This is, the, this is Satan's work to cause you to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's generosity. And then when you do, to keep you from coming back. <clears throat> then Satan, more aggressively, directly contradicts God. He says, you surely shall not die. See, God's lying to you. He just doesn't want you to be like him. He knows this is the one thing that's keeping you from becoming just like him. So now he starts to appeal to their pride. So the God who made the world, who filled the world with good things for Adam and Eve, and then put them in dominion over the world, is being presented by Satan as stingy, a liar, and as oppressive. In short, sin, eating the fruit, is presented as something good, not bad. And the consequences of sin are presented as good, wisdom, and not bad, death. So God is presented as bad and not good. And so the scary thing is that these tactics worked, and they worked quickly against the one person that we would all vote for unanimously that humanity has produced of ourselves, Adam and Eve, to represent us. And they fell quite quickly. So Satan still uses these tactics with us. He still tempts us by presenting sin as something desirable while he hides the consequences. You, many of you are fishermen. You know exactly what I'm talking about presenting the bait, hiding the hook. This is one of Satan's schemes. Now, we see some of the same tactics used against the Lord Jesus. He begins like this, if you are the Son of God. Now, I want you to remember when, when this happens, 40 days earlier, Jesus had been baptized. Do you remember what God said that day. This is my son. With you I am well pleased. God has audibly spoken from heaven, saying, you are my son. And the next thing we see is Satan saying, if you are God's son. So he's wanting to attack God's word again. He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Let's prove it. Let's make sure that that voice you heard wasn't just thunder in the sky, that you weren't imagining things. You need more proof. Don't trust God that you are God's son, and don't trust God that he would provide for you. You need to take matters into your own hands. So you see, just like with Adam and Eve, Satan calls God's word into question. Are you really God's son? Would you really die? Did God really say this? Well, you should prove it if you are God's son. And so he tempts Jesus to prove this by not trusting God for his daily bread, taking these matters into his own hands, and turning the stones into bread, which then he would presumably eat. 
because he's quite hungry. Now, Jesus' very first miracle will actually be turning water into wine. So this is something that he has the power to do. Later on, he will make loaves of bread become enough to feed multitudes of people. But in this context, what he's trying, what he's, what Satan is doing is trying to get Jesus to not trust God's provision. And Jesus answers by quoting scripture. All of these scriptures he quotes are from Deuteronomy when Israel themselves were in the wilderness after that, and they should have known these things when they were tempted to complain when they were hungry. Jesus quotes, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Some of those words were, You are my son. Then the devil takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, and he tries to use Scripture, God's word, to tempt Jesus. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels charge concerning you. This is incredibly a sneaky counterattack, because first, he's actually using God's word, Psalm 91, to tempt Jesus. The first temptation was trying to get Jesus to not trust God. And the second one, he's essentially saying, oh, you do trust God. Let's see how much you trust him. So the first one, he's tempting Jesus to not trust God. The second one, he's tempting Jesus to be presumptuous and to test God, to put God to the test here. This is remarkable. If Satan fails from one angle, he has already planned a counterattack against you. So you might try to use your very victory against you. So, for instance, he tempts you to sin, say to lust or to gossip or to lie, and you resist. And then immediately he tempts you to be proud about your victory. It was this case with King David, who after he had won many victories over his enemies, First Chronicles 21 says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. You've done so well, David. You should be proud. Why don't you count all your people to see how strong you are? Put your trust in them. See how how powerful and great of a ruler you are. This is subtlety. And again, it worked. Satan always has a plan B if plan A doesn't work out so that we must be aware, beware even in victory, of falling into an opposite sin. Uh, this is another one of Satan's tactics. And you might notice, just as a comment, how quickly Noah falls after he had been rescued. How quickly Lot falls after he had been rescued. Satan doesn't just attack once. Another thing to notice here is that Satan tries to attack us at strategic times. One of those times is at the very beginning of our walk with God. So he tempts Adam and Eve at the very beginning. He tempts Jesus at the very start of his ministry. 
And Jesus also tells a parable, you'll remember, about a sower who went out to sow seed. Some of it fell by the road, and the birds came and ate it up. And then Jesus explained that the sower sows the word, and Satan is like the birds that immediately come and take away the word. So Satan wants to trip us up right away, right at the beginning. In all three of these cases, right after we hear the word, right after the sermon's over, right after you've done your quiet time to get you thinking about something else so that you don't digest it, that you don't grow from it, to separate you from it, and to get you focused on something else. I might remind you, this is not the Lord's morning. This is the Lord's day. And it's a whole day given for you that you might take advantage and grow, not just the morning, and then you go on to do your things. So this would benefit you greatly if you not just read your word and then check off, I read it, but actually to think about it, to digest it, to meditate on it. Satan's goal in all three cases is to make us stumble when we're right at the beginning, and in Jesus' case, when he's very hungry. It's amazing, too, the contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam in this. Adam had everything. He had every, it was almost impossible to have something to tempt him with. Jesus, by contrast, was not in a beautiful garden. He was in a desert. He was starving, and he stood firm. So we have a, an incredible Savior. Now, Satan wants to attack us while we are still young and inexperienced. You will also note that in all three of these cases, Satan tries to make us cast doubt, tries to cast doubt on God's word. This is a major strategy of Satan. God strengthens us by the word. He convicts us of sin by the word. He causes us to grow by the word. For unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, that is the devil who blinds men, the minds of men, to the gospel. They think they're more intelligent. They think they know better, that they're superior intellectually, not realizing that they're blind the whole time. It says this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, the glory of Christ in God. So we see Satan wants to blind unbelievers to God's word so they won't know Christ. And for believers, we'll see in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Satan attempts to lead believers astray with false teaching. You see how often Paul has to deal with false teaching in his letters. And it's the doctrine of demons that he is attacking. In all these cases, Satan is trying to divorce you from God's word and cause it to take no effect in you. And in the case of our Lord Jesus here, Satan waited till this, morning, this moment of weakness when he was hungry, when he was bodily struggling, when he was Everything about him was probably really, just the mention of bread probably made his mouth water if he had any water left in his mouth. He tries to tempt us and use our physical 
sorrows, struggles against us. This is another tactic. He's always looking for the best opportunity to trip us up when we're weak. So when we see horrible things occur in our lives, when we lose our jobs, when we lose someone that we love, perhaps maybe when we're tired, when we're sick, Satan will use these opportunities to try to cause us to doubt God's goodness. Or when sin has begun, Satan wants to take that foothold, that beachhead, and turn it into a permanent fortress to attack us. So earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then he has this, Do not give the devil an opportunity. So we in the church are still sinners. If you're visiting with us and you stay, you'll find out that we, this is very true, we're all still sinners. And there will be times when we hurt one another. And we are called to repent and to forgive. But far too often, we do not resolve our disputes quickly, as Paul instructs us. And this becomes an opportunity for Satan to turn a dispute into division, like an open wound in which to infect the church. And so it is with our other sins too. Satan is willing to play a long game and attack us gradually. He knows that he's unlikely to immediately tempt us into a great sin. And so he tempts us with little sins first. He might make you think, I can sin a little bit. Everybody does it. Not a big deal. Anyway, I can repent anytime I want, and God will still forgive me. These are, these are lies. If you can't resist sin now in the little things, what makes you think that you're going to be able to repent of it later when you're drawn further down into its clutches? There are so many people who were un unwilling to think of walking two miles with the devil, but walked with him one, and then another, and then another. And for so long, they don't know how to leave him anymore. We can't just rely on future repentance. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time of repentance. Every time you do repent, thank God for it, because it was not your willpower that did it. It was always a divine rescue every time you repent. And so if you want to just plan on repenting further down the road, it's being presumptuous, like throwing yourself off the cliff, like Jesus, hoping that God will, will save you. Repentance is not something we can do on our own power. and We must not abuse God's grace. We see this far too often, don't we? We hear of some godly person who's fallen into some horrible scandal or a wonderful couple that's getting divorced for some reason. And we wonder, how did that happen? No doubt it began as something small. One sin leads to another, worse and worse, until lives are completely ruined. We may think sin is like a little pet, that we can take care of. But eventually, but sin is never content with that. The end of it is death. 
I heard an illustration of sin as being like this little creature that comes out of the woods and comes to this village, and people think, oh, this is cute, let's feed it, and it just keeps growing, and it keeps growing, and it keeps growing until it becomes this huge monster. And everybody in the village is spending all their time just trying to satisfy the appetite of this beast, and they have become enslaved to it. That's what sin is like. Now, Satan will play this long game and lead from one thing to another thing, and that is another of his, of his tactics. So, brothers and sisters, that's why we are required and called to stand firm, especially at the very beginning. Don't give an inch to him. Resist his first temptations and guard your heart carefully. Watch over it with all diligence. Like a general who is defending a fortress, he walks around it, he sees where it's weak, he remembers where and how it has been successfully attacked in the past, and he fortifies those areas. No doubt, your enemy has also studied your weak areas and would be delighted to see that the next time he comes around, you haven't changed your defenses at all. And Christians, when Satan has successfully attacked, you must not let him fortify his position. Do not let him get a foothold. When you fall into sin, return immediately to God. Don't think, I should be sorry about this for a while, and then I'm in, a, in condition to pray. Come to God right away with your burden. When you fall in sin, return immediately. When Satan tries to disrupt the unity of the church, repair the harmed relationship as soon as possible so that Christ's body is not torn to pieces. Now, secondly, when we have fallen into sin, Satan turns from a tempter into an accuser. Now, a true Christian cannot lose his salvation. God holds us in his hand, and he will not lose one of his sheep. But Satan can still, for a time, ruin our joy, ruin our assurance, stunt our growth, ruin our effectiveness, and our walk with the Lord. I'll only mention this second work of Satan briefly for the sake of time. But again, Satan attacks our confidence in God's word, in the gospel. He wants us to doubt the gospel. And instead of returning to our loving Father for forgiveness, instead of coming to the cross to see the Son of God who accomplished all for us, he turns our eyes back on ourselves, causes us to be introspective. And look how bad I am. Look what I've done. Look at my condition or make excuses. Or he tempts us to earn our way back on our own strength like the prodigal son. I will go and tell my father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. When we find that we're always going into the far country, always returning the prodigal, and God is always bringing out the best robe, his own robe, no doubt, clothing us, rejoicing with the angels in heaven that a sinner has returned. Or he'll cause us to despair and to give up all hope. Whatever it takes to keep you to, from returning to your shield, your strength, to your God, through Jesus Christ. So Satan, you see, is first a tempter and then a, 
a deceiver and deceiver, and secondly, an accuser and a troubler in that order. But brothers and sisters, there is good news for you. You are not on your own in this fight. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. We have armor that God has provided for us that will enable you to stand if indeed you make use of God's provisions the right way. 1 John 3.8 says this wonderful thing, the Son of God appeared for this purpose. And I'll let you think of what the end of that sentence is. You might not guess it if you haven't been speaking about this, this specific topic, but it says this, the Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. Romans 16 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So brothers and sisters, do not despair. If we are with the Lord, we are on the winning side. And that God has given us the greatest helper we could have in this battle, the Holy Spirit. Every place where Satan afflicts us, the Holy Spirit helps us. He assists us in our great battle against sin and the devil at every point in the conflict. Satan is a liar and a deceiver, but the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and leads us into the truth. Satan hopes to turn us away from God, but the Holy Spirit leads us to Christ. That is his office. Satan tempts us to be careless about sin, but the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Satan tries to disrupt the unity of the church, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Again, Satan is a troubler. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. Satan isn't an accuser who will cause you to doubt God's love, despair of your condition, doubt that you are God's son or God's daughter. He will try to use your sin to keep you from calling on the Lord. But the Holy Spirit is the one who leads all of God's children. He is the one who enables you to pray, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that you are God's child. And what shall we say against these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against you? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Who is the one who accuses? You have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for your sins. And finally, we ought to remember that God is sovereign. Satan is our enemy, yes, but he's also God's creature, God's prisoner. God knows all of Satan's strategies. He detects all of his movements, and God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. He will, in the temptation, provide a way of escape. And so if we use the way of escape that God has provided, we will grow in strength. In fact, God is so powerful and so good so much better in this conflict than, than Satan that he can even use Satan's victories over you for your good. You know the cross 
itself was God's, it was the hour and the power of darkness, but it was also the hour that Jesus triumphed over his enemies. Also with you, Satan may have won a victory against you. No doubt he has. But has God not used that to also teach you humility? Has it taught you to watch more carefully against sin? Has it caused you to cry out to God for help and deliverance? Then even in the midst of defeat, there is victory. There is hope. The promises of the gospel are still true for you. So again, turn to the Lord in faith and repentance, brothers and sisters. He is your high tower. He is your deliverer. Christians, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would strengthen us, that you would give us the victory over our enemies, over your enemies. Lord, we have no strength without you. Keep us close to yourself. Hold us fast. Do not let us go. We rest in you, Lord. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.